Before we begin, because there's room in today's sermon, well, in last week's sermon, I feel like in all these sermons on the image of God, there's room for the enemy to kind of sneak in and levy accusations against you. And so I just want to um, comment on that. This morning when I was praying in my own personal time, I was reflecting on this idea that really Satan's role as the accuser, that's what Satan means, the adversary. He's kind of nameless, actually, in the scriptures. You know, this idea of Satan as the adversary, the accuser of the brethren, it really is in stark contrast to Jesus as our high priest, right? That Satan makes accusations, 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 and Jesus is our high priest who has done that uh, work of reconciliation as the propitiation, that sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God. And now, basically, as Jesus, as Satan accuses night and day, Jesus intercedes night and day at the right hand of the Father. His finished work is done. And so we want to remember that as we go through these messages, that the enemy might want to accuse you at times, but accusations come from the enemy. And so if you start to have that feeling as, you know, you hear me say something and all of a sudden someone starts to twist it in your mind and it feels like an accusation, Remember, accusations don't come from your father. They come from the adversary. And so you need to take that accusation, you need to throw it in a cage, and you need to make it obedient to truth. That's what Paul says. And so as we go through this today, um, and all of these sermons, just keep that in the back of your mind, okay? So we've been, if you're joining us for the first time, we've been going through this series on the image of God and and so we looked at what is the image of God, how mankind creates, um, or God creates mankind as the image of God, as this representative, as this image-bearing uh, creation that's unique, it's set apart from all other creation. We talked about how that, that role and identity as being an image-bearer was marred in the chapter, in third chapter of Genesis, when Adam and Eve embraced rebellion, open rebellion against God, and how that kind of broke the mirror, so to say, in terms of being an image bearer. And then we've been looking at these various um, kind of factors that God intertwines in his definition of humanity, male and female, not good for man to be alone, uh, created to have dominion, to work the garden. And today we're going to talk about the first command that's given in the Bible, That's right after God creates Adam and Eve, or Adam rather, he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Um, But before we get into that, I want to kind of go back. This is right before the pandemic, right? Right before the pandemic in February, um, David and I were traveling in Egypt, and we were traveling in Egypt with um, an organization where that was training some pastors and lay leaders within the church in the city of Minya. And we were just teaching people at these various churches. And so we're at this church. We had just finished up with the training. And this woman came up to me. She didn't speak any English. She came up to me with a translator, and the translator said um, she would like for you to pray for her, for you to pray for her. And I said, sure. And she said she'd like you to pray for her because she's unable to have, she hasn't had any kids yet. You know, she's been married for, it was whatever it was, almost 20 years and still couldn't get pregnant. And she asked that I would pray for her to have children. Now, um, I know that we, we live in the United States, right? We live in the United States, but for those of you who have traveled the world or maybe you have family that lives in another culture, 
not having kids in a Middle Eastern context is a big deal. It's a big deal. Matter of fact, when Gene and I were on the mission field and we were praying about where God was going to bring us and, you know, what God wanted from us, and we even prayed about, you know, whether or not we should have kids because we didn't know where we were going to wind up. Like, what if we wind up in a country where I don't necessarily want to raise kids? You know, that kind of idea. And one of our wiser teammates said to us, if you work with Muslims and don't have kids, people are going to think you're strange that there is this sense in which having kids is an enormous part of their culture, and it's really an enormous part of the cultures all over the world for all of history up until the modern age. To not have children, to not be able to get pregnant, is a huge cultural struggle that comes with a ton of shame. And so as I was praying over this woman, and as they were explaining to me, and I had some of the background understanding from a cross-cultural environment, I could feel for her. You could see her pain. You could see the disappointment she felt with herself, maybe the disappointment that her husband had with her, that her mother-in-law had over her. All of these different things in her own culture of not being able to have kids, which is that legacy. Now, you may not be from a shame-honor culture. You know, probably most of you didn't grow up in a shame-honor family, though some of you may have grown up in a shame-honor culture where there's a social stigma for not having children. But that doesn't mean that you haven't been carrying wounds that are related to this same theme. You see, because within this room, most certainly there are people who have suffered multiple miscarriages who wanted children. There's the people who are unmarried who want nothing more than to start a family. There's people who are waiting to adopt and have been for a long time. There's people who struggle with infertility. There's people who have lost children in nasty divorces. There's people who have had to bury children prematurely. Beyond that, there's people who have had abortions. There's people who have neglected their children and then they came to faith later in life and they carry the shame of that. There's people who maybe even abused their children or maybe as a child you were abused. Now what I want you to know is that all of these things from abuse to miscarriage are caused by sin. Now, not specifically your sin, That's one of those things that the accuser of the brethren will sneak into your mind that you'll say, I did this and therefore this is God's whip. He's cracking me. The reason I can't get pregnant is because, no, that's not the way that it works. The curse of sin, the stain of sin has broken the world. And that's why these things exist. But what we want to begin with is that the desire to have children The desire to build a family is part of God's great design, right? That's why uh, the psalmist says in Psalm 127 that blessed is the man who fills his quiver with many arrows. He'll not be ashamed at the gate, arrows being children. That children are a heritage. They are a blessing from the Lord. And so we want to explore this idea of be fruitful and multiply because we are living in a world where we see more of the negative side of that than the positive blessing of it. Genesis 1, 27, 28 reads this. So God made, or God created man in his own image. 
in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, them, bam. I'm going to do these things periodically to lighten the mood. And God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's where we want to focus today. What you need to see right from the beginning is that God's desire for his creation, for this humanity, this mankind, is to be his image, created as his image. Well, his desire for them, his command for them, is to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. Now, when we think of things that are fruitful, right, you think of a tree, you think of a tree that bears fruit, like my fig tree this year is going bananas with figs, right? It's bearing lots of figs this year. I don't just have a lot of fig trees in my yard. That would be multiplication. Um, I have fruitful fig trees in my yard that are bearing fruit. God commands Adam and Eve to be fruitful, That says something about the way that they live their lives, right? That God created them to go to him, not to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but to go to him for their wisdom for living. And as they lived according to his wisdom, they would bear fruit. But he also wants them to multiply. He wants them to have babies, in other words. He says this same thing, to multiply, be fruitful, multiply. To the animals, he wants to fill the whole world with humans, with humans. That was God's first command. His first command to Adam and Eve is have babies and fill the world with them. Why? We talked about this the first week that humanity is created as the image of God. And, um, you know, one thing I was thinking about is it's kind of like the Rocky statue, right? Now, we're from the greater Philadelphia area. We know the Rocky statue. We know the Rocky statue isn't actually Rocky, And you guys know Rocky's not a real person, right? But we know that that Rocky statue represents Rocky, right? And so that's the idea of us being made as the image of God. That as God created Adam, he says, you are my image. And everywhere you go, you spread my reign. You spread my domain. And this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians that man is the glory of God. And so everywhere where Adam went pre-fall, the glory of God goes. And so when God says, I want you to fill the earth with image bearers, he's really saying, as we could see in parallel passages across the scriptures, he's saying, fill the world with the glory of God. As the water covers the sea, fill my world with glory. And the way that we fill with glory in this pre-fall command is to have more image bearers who make more image bearers who have babies and they spread across the world. And in so doing, then the glory of God would spread through this process of multiplication. And so it's not a surprise that we see at the end of Genesis 2, the first marriage, God says it's not good for man to be alone. He makes a helpmate suitable for him. They get married. They start having babies, right? Because the role of family and the role of community in this mandate, it can't be separated. Now, this is a call, a command, a mandate for families. It's also a universal call for all humans. That was God's design. Now, sin disturbed that design, cracked that design, but that was God's design for man and woman to get together, to get married, for two to become one flesh and to have children. So if I was going to summarize the initial understanding of this, it's that we, as human beings, were created with the purpose. 
and with the clear command to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth with the glory of God by spreading image, his image all over the world. And in that initial command, how did we spread his image all over the world? Say it. What did we do? We had babies, okay? You guys following me so far? All right. Well, at least Nicole does. Okay. <laughs> the second thing is this, the impact of sin. How did sin, that's what we've been looking at. Original design, how does sin impact it? How does the new covenant restore it? And so how does sin impact this design? Well, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they choose open rebellion against God. We know that. We saw that. We've been exploring that the last few weeks. And immediately we see the distortion of God's image in humanity because of sin. We see the way that our image-bearing aspect is marred by sin, that all of a sudden we have uh, open joy is replaced with shame and hiding and fear. We have unity is replaced with disunity. Um, you have their, their, they have a broken relationship with God. They have a broken relationship with each other. They have a broken relationship with themselves. And so sin's impact is pervasive. We see this. And because of sin... Now Adam and Eve have, in some ways, the inability to fulfill the initial command. Yes, they can have babies. That's not in, in their, their inability. But they, by having babies, they are no longer going to spread the glory of God all over the world. Matter of fact, what we see is that with the first, finally, Adam and Eve have, a, have two sons. And in chapter 4 of Genesis, with these first two brothers, right? This is the hope of the world because the promised seed of Eve is going to crush the serpent's head. No, he's not going to crush the serpent's head. He's going to crush his brother's head with a rock in a field because he got mad about his bananas, okay? Or whatever crop he brought to God as a sacrifice. And so we see the immediate impact of the fall in the first kind of real-world scenario is this direct attack against the be fruitful and multiply. We see that sin is destroying, disrupting, making difficult God's first command to be fruitful and multiply. And what we see happen as we go through just the first couple chapters of Genesis is that what Adam and Eve multiply and what their kin, their children multiply is not God glorifying image bearing, but what they multiply is sin. Because now as they multiply, they're multiplying sinful human beings who are fallen in Adam. And that's why we get to the flood. And what, is the, what does Moses say about the flood? He says, the intent of man's heart was entirely evil. This is what man has multiplied. Different type of be fruitful and multiply. Corruption of reproduction and procreation. That's what was multiplied. Corruption, corruption, corruption. And we see throughout the scriptures, we don't have near enough time to talk about these things. There's so many things you could talk about. But we see immediately thinking about this promised line that goes from Adam to Noah, that goes on to Abraham and to Isaac, and it goes down to the nation of Israel. Think about it this way. Abram, his name is, means exalted father. God changes his name to Abraham, which means father of many. Guess what? He had how many kids? None. So we see right from the beginning, before, he gets, before they get pregnant, Sarah gets pregnant at the age of 90, 
okay? So however many years they're married, seven decades, seven decades plus, seven decades of not being able to have children, okay? That's what we see in Sarah's life before Abraham and Sarah finally have Isaac. And so we see this barrenness, this inability to have a child in Sarah's life. She does have a child of faith, Isaac. And guess what? Isaac's wife, unable to have children until he prays and God opens up her womb and he allows her to get pregnant. And this continues throughout Genesis, either with struggling with fertility or it gets even gnarlier when we get to Jacob, right? And then Jacob, he gets tricked into marrying Leah. He really wants to marry Rachel. And then Rachel and Leah are basically prostituting him back and forth for mandrakes and sex becomes a weapon, in this story, and you realize that what was supposed to be this beautiful, created thing for a husband and wife to be fruitful and multiply now is being corrupted on every facet imaginable. Then we have Judah, who sleeps with his daughter-in-law, who he thinks is a prostitute, and then God redeems that line, and she winds up giving birth to a son who's in the heritage of Jesus. See, the point is this. We see the way sin is corrupting this command from God to be fruitful and multiply. And we don't just see it in situations like that. We see it with the Canaanites, the Ammonites, who would sacrifice their children to Moloch in order to bless their crops, that they would have a good harvest. We see it with Pharaoh killing all of the babies. We see it with King Herod killing all of the babies when Jesus is born. We see these things throughout the scriptures. We see issues of child sacrifice. We see stories of rape. And we see these things in our own lives too. We see these things in our own world. If I'm right, I don't want to spend too much time on it because it's depressing. But we realize that even in our own world, we have, we're in population decline for the, for the West, for the global West, the global North. In other words, you know, Europe, United States. That where people, more and more couples are choosing never to have kids. I, I don't mean to offend you, but I will. There's something dysfunctional about that. There's something dysfunctional about a husband and wife never wanting children. Not being able to is a different scenario, but choosing to never parent kids. That's the purpose. You might disagree with me, but I would ask you to show me in Scripture how I'm wrong. These are things that we need to wrestle through. God's created order and then how sin has corrupted it. It's strange to have a bunch of 20-somethings who have never been married getting voluntary vasectomies, which is the norm now in this generation. That's unusual, and it's counter to what God would have. Sin has impacted this command to be fruitful and multiply. I'll summarize it by saying this. Instead of being fruitful and multiplying, sin-cursed humanity excels at producing and multiplying new kinds of evil and then smearing that across the globe. But through the midst of all of this, again, I'm going to back up and pause. Don't let the accuser put things in your mind. Cling to what is true, not to the accusations. We see in Isaiah 54, God begins promising how he's going to repair 
the way sin has impacted being fruitful and multiplying. How, how sin has impacted that mandate, we start to see what God is going to do about it in Isaiah 54. And I'm going to read a good portion of this chapter if you want to follow along. Isaiah 54, verse 1. He says, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. So I just want to think about this. He's talking, he's directly addressing the shame of not being able to have children. Now you see there's multiple reasons even in this single verse of why whoever he's proclaiming to was unable to have children. This isn't just about women who can't get pregnant. He's also addressing women who have no way of getting pregnant. He says, those who are unmarried. How can the unmarried, how can the children of the unmarried outnumber the children of those who are married? But that's the promise that we see here in this prophetic literature that Isaiah prophetically starts to say, those of you who wanted kids and maybe you got married late in life or maybe you were unable or maybe you never got married or maybe your own health issues impeded you from having children. He says, I have news for you and the news for you is this, start to rejoice. You should start to rejoice and cry aloud you who have not been in labor because you will have more children than the woman who had 21 children naturally, without meds, home birth, in a tub, super granola, okay? Verse 2, he says, Enlarge the place of your tent, and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. What's he saying? He's saying build an addition. He's saying build an addition. You need to expand your tent. You're going to need to get longer ropes. You're going to get to need, you're gonna need stronger stakes because there's going to be more pull and there's going to be more leverage. You're going to have to get more fabric. You're going to have to spread it out because you're gonna, you need to go talk to your husband. You need to triple the size of your home because that's how many more children you're going to have. And all the wives are like, oh, my gosh, right? That's how many kids you're going to have. You're going to have so many kids he says, that you're going to have to possess nations and all those desolate ghost towns that are in the Midwest and that are all over the world, you're going to have to send your kids there to repopulate them because there's going to be so many children that you're going to have. That's what he's saying. Not only are you going to have a lot of kids, but they're going to possess nations and they're going to possess cities and they're going to burst forth with people. This is Abrahamic covenantal language. Right? When, when God says to Abraham that from you all the nations will be blessed, that you're going to be a blessing to all nations, you're going to have more children than the stars in the sky, this is Abrahamic covenantal language. This is the promise he's giving in the new covenant. Verse 4, he says, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Do not be confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth the reproach of your widowhood. Look how he keeps adding different reasons for why maybe you couldn't have kids. The shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood, you will remember no more. Again, with the impossibility, widows having children. 
He says all of that shame, whether it was 10 years of shame, 20 years of shame, whether it was 90 years of shame, in a moment, it will be replaced with inexpressible joy that causes you to break forth into singing. Have you ever been so filled with joy? You're like at ShopRite, and all of a sudden you just push the card away and start singing, right, and doing a little dance? Probably not. But that's what he says. You're going to break forth into singing because your joy is so thick. And so the question becomes this. What husband is going to make this a reality? What husband is going to have the widow bear children? What husband is going to have the desolate woman bear children? Um, What husband is going to be able to afford to expand these tents and repopulate cities and pay for all those kids to go to college? You know, even if it's Bethlehem Community College, how is he going to pay for it? And this is what we see in verse 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He is called, for the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. Maybe you were a wife who was cast off in your youth. Maybe you were a wife who was widowed at a young age. Maybe you went your whole life believing you would be the one who had kids and you never did. And this is what God says, that Yahweh, the Lord who commands angelic armies, the Lord who redeemed Israel out of Egypt, who redeemed us out of the slavery to sin, the God of the whole earth, he will be your husband And he himself will personally remove your shame. And nobody will look at Sarah any longer and say, look at Abraham's wife. She doesn't even have kids. Instead, they'll say, look at Abraham's wife. She has more children than the stars of the sky. Paul writes about how Jesus is to the church as a husband is to the bride. That the creator of all things will be the husband of these barren women, of these widowed women, of these infertile women. That the Holy One of Israel, Jesus, will be their husband. This is new covenant, ecclesiological church language as it prophetically looks towards the day when Jesus will marry his church at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jump to verse 11. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of of a gate and your, your gates of carbuncles, which I think are a type of barnacle. It's a joke. And all your wall of precious stones. In other words, he's going to mix jewels in with all of the common building materials because there's so much wealth with this husband, this maker of all things, that he says, you want to do an addition? Yeah, why don't you mix some sapphires into that drywall? I think that will look nice. And so this is, this is the kind of husband that we're being given. Verse 13, all your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Jesus quotes this in John 6, and 45, a verse we talk about when we teach disciple-making. Like the perfect father, the Lord will instruct his children. 
that he's, he's given the barren woman children. He's given the divorced woman children. He's given the broken woman children. He's giving the widowed woman children. And like the perfect father, he won't be a rolling stone. He's going to raise those children in the way of the Lord and teach them. He will be the father that they never had in their home. He will raise them to fear the Lord and to know his covenantal love. The point is this. The barren woman will bear children of the covenant, the new covenant. God will purge the curse. Disparity will turn into prosperity. Barren wombs will turn into nations. How? How will this be accomplished? To whom is this promise given? Like, is this promise for you? Is this promise for me? I'm not a woman. So is this promise for me? Like, what's going on here? Well, the chapter before tells us how, and the chapter after tells us who. Chapter 4, Isaiah 53, we read in verse 5, but he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That's how. This will be accomplished. And to whom is this promise given? Isaiah 55, 1. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. See, Jesus is the one who would bring about this impact. He would bring it about through his crucifixion, through his resurrection, that Jesus would die on your sins so that you could die on the cross for your sins so you could be forgiven, that he would be raised from the dead so that you could live forever, and then he would send us his Holy Spirit so that we could follow him as king. And to all who are thirsty, who would come, he invites them, come, buy from me. The price is free. Enjoy the redemptive work that I already did. That Jesus comes not made in the image of God. Jesus comes as the image of God, the visible image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature, the radiance of his glory. That Jesus comes and he's crucified on a cross for things he did not do. He lived the life we could not leave, lead. And then he's raised from the grave. And in that process of sending his Holy Spirit, as we are spiritually regenerated by his Holy Spirit, he's restoring the image of God in humanity because he's creating a new humanity. Because now he comes as a second Adam and everyone born of him, everyone who's born again of the water and the Spirit, everyone who's born again is part of this new humanity where the gateway is reconciliation with God provided by Jesus in the veil that was torn, which is his flesh. And then, having been raised from the grave as the first fruit of resurrection, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, meet me at the Mount of Olives. And this is what Jesus says. Before I share, forgot to share earlier. As God purges the earth in the flood, and they're floating around. And finally, the waters recede, and they get off of the ark. And Abraham or Noah sacrifices. Do you know what the command that's given to Noah is? He says, Hey, Noah, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. 
And Jesus comes as the greater ark to save humanity. And as he comes back from the grave and he goes to the Mount of Olives, this is what he says. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. A new humanity, a new creation, a new command, which is the original command. Go and make disciples. Do you know what that means? Go and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to obey. It's the same exact command as the first command, to be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful. He says, obey Christ, identify with me, identify with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in baptism. Obey the things that I've told you to do. Now you have the ability to do it. Now you can eat from the tree of life instead of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you actually have the ability to be the image bearer that God created you to be as you are transformed from glory to glory to glory in this process of sanctification and discipleship. Be fruitful. Abide with me and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And the fruit you bear with me will be fruit that remains. And multiply. Expand the kingdom. Go and make disciples, which discipleship after the gospel, discipleship is referred to as family. Go and make disciples. Expand the kingdom. Expand the family through evangelism. Like Peter says that the seed, right? This is the same root word for for sperm, right? This, this seed goes into the heart of stone and it begins to bear fruit and it begins to bring that dead heart of stone to life and then that heart grows within our body of death until it eventually takes over and we are fully the way that we're supposed to be in glory. You see this, go and make disciples, be fruitful and multiply. Both commands are aimed at filling the earth with the glory of God. Both are multiplication, but in the new covenant, it shifts from physical multiplication to spiritual multiplication. And in Christ, we actually have the ability to fulfill the mandate that we were given. Are you following me? In Christ, as a new creation, we are re-given the initial command to be fruitful and multiply. But now, instead of doing this through physical procreation and children, we do it through spiritual children by making disciples, which is why the barren woman, the widowed woman, the divorced woman, the single woman will have more children than the one who had children naturally. That's the beauty of Isaiah 54. So back to that woman in Egypt. She asked me to pray. She knew no English. I knew no Arabic. It was fine. I placed my hands on her head and I prayed. But I felt like I couldn't control what came out of my mouth. I started to pray for her to get pregnant, but then, and there's no explanation besides the Holy Spirit, I just prayed over her what I just explained to you, which I had never thought of before. 
that as I'm praying over her, in the exact biblical theology framework that I just unpacked for you, I'm praying this over her. It's like my mind and my spirit are speaking, and then my brain is over here going and just kind of watching me do it. Because I was praying in the Spirit, for lack of a better term, praying in the Spirit these truths over her that I had never thought of before, that I had never contemplated before, but the Spirit was revealing it to me in the moment as I prayed over her. I prayed that she would be a mighty witness for the gospel and that she would have more spiritual children than she could ever ever have possibly have physical children, and that any shame that she felt from having no physical children would go away in her family of Christ as she bore many, many, many spiritual children. I prayed that she would find joy in the midst of barren sorrow, knowing that God's new covenant plan is greater than the joy she could have had having her own physical children. As hard as that is to understand, that's the promise of Isaiah 54. What I want you to know is that it's always been about multiplication. Multiplication isn't a New Testament concept. It's not a, you know, revolve concept. It has always been about multiplication. It has always been from the creation of mankind about spreading God's glory across the world. And in the, in the old covenant, the Jewish covenant, they did this through procreation by having lots of babies. But we do this in the new covenant through gospel saturation that you have been called by name and you have been given remarkable purpose to know him, to be fruitful, and to make him known, to multiply, and in so doing, fill the world from Cape May to, to Qatar with his glory as new people come into faith, new creations in Christ. Do you know that in the last 40 years, the number of unreached people groups has more than doubled from 1.1 billion to 2.3 billion? Now is the time to rush to those who have never heard. Now is the time to rush to those who have never heard the over 2.3 billion people who have no access to the gospel or limited access to the gospel. Now is the time to rush into our communities and to proclaim the seed of the gospel that people would hear it. And as we do, realizing that God is giving us more children, more brothers, more sisters, more spiritual grandchildren than we could ever have physically. And God wants to work through you to do this. And the accuser is going to say, not you. And the high priest is going to say, yeah, you. I created good works for you to do that you would walk in them. We have to pick up this banner as the church again. Pandemic's over. We can't live under that fatigue in the new culture that was created. The world needs to hear about the maker who is their husband. And so this is my prayer, my charge for you. One, be fruitful. Be fruitful. Be fruitful. Identify with this king and obey him. It's not an ultimatum. It's an invitation to become more like him, to have a relationship with him, to draw near to him as he draws near to you. 
Gene and I were just talking this past um, week about in October doing like a quiet time boot camp where we do a seminar on a Saturday morning and then 30 days of accountability because there's so many of you, you've gone through the hub, you've gone through ABCs, you've gone through doctrine, and you still cannot seem to find your sea legs as spending regular time in the word and in prayer. And we have to figure it out together. And that's why we're designing that to be announced. Be fruitful, abide with him, saturate it with him, multiply, spread his glory across the globe by making disciples. This is living your faith out loud. It's not some fancy program. It's an overflow of who you are. And if you're abiding deeply with him, he will overflow into your relationships, into your relationships, into your neighbors, into your, into your streets and your houses. He will do that work because he's transforming you from the inside out. And this command is for everyone. As the first command, so the final command. That all of us need to know these basics of how to be fruitful and how to multiply in simple ways that are uncluttered, uncluttered by Christian culture and churchianity. As a church, we need to reignite this call in our hearts, in our discipleship groups, in our families. I think that over the last few years, as we lost our opportunities in Greece and we lost our opportunities here and we lost our opportunities there. We let the fire wane, but now it's time to fan it back into flame and to realize that the spiritual promises are greater than the physical promises. The physical promises are a shadow. The spiritual promises are substance. Don't sacrifice substance for shadow. Let me pray that we would be fruitful and multiply. Father God, I think about how different things shift in the new covenant that Paul then says in 1 Corinthians, if you cannot get married, it's better not to be married because then you can give yourself to the gospel. But then he calls Timothy his spiritual son. That John says in 3 John, I believe, I rejoice to know that some of my children are walking in the faith. Again, a man who gave his life for spiritual multiplication instead of having a physical earthly family. Jesus said, who is my brother? Who is my mother? Is it not those who do the will of my father? Father God, we confess to you that we pursue things we can see with our eyes. Because... Those are good and natural desires to have a family, to get married, to have children. God, but we also confess that it's hard for us to understand how the spiritual way could be a better way. It's hard for us to understand that. We look at someone like Paul, we say, how can you say it's better to not get married and have spiritual children than to enjoy all the blessings of marriage? God, give us faith to believe that your spiritual fruit is wonderful. Give us faith to believe that a spiritual family is truer than our earthly family. Give us faith to believe these things, God, because the truth is that we do not believe them. We treat our spiritual family as people we pass by once a week. God, help us to understand the new covenant in a deeper, richer way. I pray for those who are wounded and hurting. Would you restore 
the joy of salvation to their hearts today. God, would you let us see this invitation to be fruitful and multiply as that. It's an invitation to joy, the kind of joy that makes you break forth with singing. If the angels rejoice over one sinner that repents, Lord, how much more should we be rejoicing as well with them? Father God, teach us your ways that we might walk in them. In your name we pray, amen.